we come again this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Today's study is a familiar story, the story of Jesus walking on water. Most people, both inside and outside of Christianity, know the basics of this story, but today we're not going to simply just study the basics. It's my hope you'll know the meaning of this story and that this meaning buries itself in your heart and causes change. Before we look at this story, though, I did want to remind you Uh, Back to the first parable of Matthew 13, you remember this first parable, the parable of the soils. You remember Jesus talked about different kinds of soils, four different kinds of soils. There was the hard soil that rejected the word. It was a response of of stubborn, even hateful people to uh, the truth, the word of God. We saw this in vivid color when Jesus visited his hometown, Nazareth, outright rejection. Then there's the shallow soil, or you could say the rocky soil. Underneath the surface is a, is a layer of rock that initially all the energy, all the nutrients, all the water go to, to making that shoot grow up very quickly, only to see that when the hot sun comes out, it shrivels up and dies. These are the people who receive the word with joy but are shallow, and as time gets tough and things press in on life, they find themselves drifting away from God very quickly. Then there is the thorny soil or weedy soil. This is the soil that receives the, the, the seed, receives the Word of God, and it's nevertheless filled with weeds or roots or fibrous roots of weeds, and it isn't very long before the truth of God's Word is choked out. People receive the Word but are preoccupied with wealth, the pursuit of life, other things in, their, in terms of their pursuit of their own happiness and their own business. They never truly grow, and eventually the Word is choked out. Finally, you'll remember, there is that good soil, weed-free, rock-free, clean soil that allows the seed to to plant down deeply inside, take firm root, go upward and upward, and then really what we noticed at the end, amazingly multiply, bear fruit. These are true believers. The Word comes and doesn't just hang around for a little bit and then choked out or dried out. No, the Word comes and really makes a difference. They receive it. They're always gaining deeper roots. They're always producing new shoots and producing new fruit. And we need to get this in our hearts, right? The distinguishing mark of a true believer is not simple mental consent to the things of God, just sort of saying, yeah, I think I believe that. It's not going through a a, a ritual or a series of rituals even. It's not putting your name on some church roll or some list. It's not even having some sort of emotional moment with God. Those things can all happen to true believers, sure. I would say they're even something that does happen to all true believers. But the distinguishing mark, the distinctive about true Christians, is that true followers are distinguished by the fact that they grow. They mature. They grow up. They grow deep. They grow fruit. Matthew chapter 13, verse 23 As for what is sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. Jesus will hear this very similar verse later on in Matthew, but in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says in verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So it's not just about some sort of initial commitment or some sort of mental or emotional consent. It is about growth. It's about losing your life for the sake of Christ and then continually, daily, 
putting your life in line, saying this day is dedicated to Christ and Christ alone, a continual relinquishing of your rights, continual relinquishing of your, your own desires and saying, Lord, I give this up. It's self-denial. True believers evidence the fact that they are genuine by remaining in Christ. And we may stumble from time to time. Our general life should be defined by growth in Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, told the early church, we studied this some years ago, he told the early church about some people who had abandoned the faith and left the church. You remember this verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now, John is consistent with Jesus, who's consistent with Peter, who's consistent with Paul and all the apostles, that the distinguishing mark of a believer, a true believer, a true Christian, is growth, maturity, perseverance, endurance, and fruit. And what we're going to see here in today's passage is some early fruit of those first disciples. We get to watch a, a firsthand view as, as these disciples mature a little bit. We get to see them grow a little bit. Now, we know that not all growth is, is true. It has to be a continual, lifelong growth that gives us the distinguishing mark. And so we know that one of them, of course, Jesus knew from before the foundation of time, they knew that Judas would, would carry out his satanic plan. But all of them, he has a whole here. As we look at them in this passage, what we find out is that they grow a little bit. They mature a little bit. What we see in the disciples today is, is these men of, of little faith actually grow to a deeper faith. That's really what this passage is about. It's about gaining a deeper faith. Now, for some of you, a deeper faith does indeed mean salvation. You need to make that conscientious decision to, to follow Christ, to surrender everything to become a disciple of Christ. For others of you, you are a disciple of Christ, but this is all about growing deeper. This is all about maturing beyond where you are. You know, that's really my objective. Every Sunday or Saturday, as it is the case, every week is to just push you to take one step. I know everyone's not in the same place. I know that everyone's not in the same place in the same area. But my prayer for everyone every week is that they might just take one step, one baby step in the right direction, one step of spiritual growth. All right, let's read this story. Let me give you some context of the story, and then I'm going to make some points as we see them in the story. Let me read to you, beginning Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and I'll read down to verse 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time, was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. God bless the reading of his word. Well, verse 22 there tells us this happened at the end of the day after the feeding of 5,000, really more than that. So they were still in that rural area, not far from, probably just a few miles from, scholars believe, from a little village called Bethsaida. Jesus tells his men to get in the boat and start heading in the direction, really back out to sea, back across uh, the lake there, probably sort of cutting the corner of the lake to another area somewhere nearby. In verse 23, in fact, we don't uh, by the way, we don't really know what, where they were intending to go. Although they ended up in a certain place. Maybe they changed their direction after Jesus got in the boat and all this had happened. But initially, they just were heading out to the sea, and that's what you have to have in your mind. In verse 23, it says, He went up on the mountain to pray. All his disciples were out in the sea. He was up on the mountain alone. They were out to the ocean. And I really believe what, what Jesus was doing up there on the mountain was praying for his disciples. And I don't think he was asking God to preserve them from hardship, to spare them difficulty out on the sea. Rather, I think Jesus was saying to God something similar to what you hear in Jesus' prayer in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So I don't believe Jesus was up there praying for disciples and saying, Lord, you know, they've had such a hard time. This is such a hard life. Lord, just just spare them this hardship. I think God often does spare us hardship. I don't think this is what Jesus was praying. I think Jesus was not praying that. I think Jesus was saying, Lord, spare them from the evil one and use this hardship to sanctify them to grow them, to mature them, to wash them. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what Jesus prays for us, isn't it? He doesn't always pray that life is easy, that we have no hardship, that we're disease-free, that we never face death or hardship or marriage problems or, or family problems or work problems or illness. No. Yes, God does spare us from those things from time to time in His great mercy and love. But oftentimes, Jesus' prayer for us is not that we're spared from hardship, but that God would use hardship to draw us to himself. Essentially, the prayer in John 17, Jesus is saying that that the life of the believer, the, the way of growth, the way of sanctification is through a mixture of hardship and the Word of God. Those things combined mature the believer. It's like a formula, right? It's like a a chemistry formula. My daughter in college, she's taking chemistry and she's learning all these formulas. Here's a formula for growth. Here's a formula for maturity in Christ. It is hardship combined with revelation of the Word of God. Those two things cause believers to grow. And we are encouraged to know that Jesus is up in heaven praying for us that in those times that we are not necessarily spared hardship, but we are spared the evil one, and we are growing. Jesus was looking out over the ocean, and maybe miraculously, I don't know how he could see them. Perhaps he was from a high height, but I imagine in a storm with lots of clouds and wind and waves, I don't know that he could 
naturally see them, but somehow he knew they were out there. Perhaps he could see them out there struggling and toiling in this great storm. The disciples there trying to make headway across that great lake, very severe storm as they see in Galilee all the time. Well, this brings us to a first point. Number one, God uses hardship to bring us to himself. God uses hardship to bring us to himself. Now, this story of the calming of a sea sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 8, there was a storm. There was the first storm. And last time we saw them, and they're in the middle of the lake, and one of these horrible Galilean storms gets kicked up. And you remember what happens. Jesus was actually there with them in the boat asleep down under the, the hole. And they rush down under there and start shaking him awake. And, Lord, what, do you not care for us? I mean, you're just sleeping all this storm and all taking in all this water and the waves. But again, they didn't know that Jesus was using that storm as an opportunity to bring them to greater knowledge of who he was. Before they could get to that point, they had to see the storm. In other words, to know that Jesus had power over the storm, they had to see the storm, right? Before they could understand the power of Christ and, and the nature of the supernatural nature of his being, his power, there had to be a storm. Now, this applies to really any kind of evil, any kind of sin. Even our whole era is marked with, with sin and depravity, and the only way we're going to see God's utter power and utter strength over it is for Him to allow, at least for a time, for these things to exist. No, God did not create evil. Evil was something that happened when a Satan uh, rejected God, a, a demon, uh, an, a, an angel, a fallen angel, rejected God, and, and all evil really is just a is just a deprivation of holiness, a deprivation of God. All sin is just a, a negative. It doesn't exist on its own. It's darkness. And the only way we could see God's power over darkness and God's power over death and God's power over sin and God's power over hardship and God's power over this storm was that storm to first happen and Jesus to put on that display. So that's what had happened in that first storm. They shook him awake. No amount of rowing, no amount of seamanship, no amount of bailing water, no amount of, of throwing things over the side was going to save them. And they, they needed to see that they couldn't do anything, and they needed to rush to Jesus. They needed miraculous intervention, and they looked to Jesus. Now, if you were to ask the disciples about that first storm, or even the second storm as well, I reckon you would hear them say something like this, I would never go through that storm again. That was terrifying. But at the same time, I would never give up that experience. Because that storm unveiled to me the nature of Jesus. Now, here we have Jesus allowing the second storm to overcome the disciples. Only this time, it's worse because Jesus isn't there. He's not in the hole of the boat sleeping. He's gone. He's up the side of a mountain. And I think that was on purpose. I think he wanted them to be even more fearful than last time. You know, they would have understood the, what they were supposed to do. You know, if Jesus is sleeping, we go wake him up, and he calms the storm. That's what happens. That's how we fix this problem. But this time, Jesus is not even there. The Apostle John, in his account of this, tells us that the sea arose. There was a great wind, and we read here, Matthew says the boat is tossed about. Again, uh, some of you have been to Israel. You've gone to see that boat that they finally found, a boat from that era. It's not a very big boat, 15, 20 feet, just enough for 12, 15 people to be on. It's not a real big boat. And it's getting tossed about back and forth. 
This is a huge test for them. Now, where does God want them spiritually? Where does God want you spiritually, emotionally? God wants you at the bitter end of yourself. He wants you totally dependent. He wants you at that point where you say, I cannot do life. I can't do it on my own. I must rely on you. And yes, you can in a surface way do life. There are plenty of unbelievers and even hateful people to the gospel who live life sort of in a physical way. But spiritually speaking, you come to the end of yourself and say, I can't survive. I can't survive temptation. I can't survive sin. I can't survive the hardship of life without Jesus Christ. Don't be comforted by your earthly belongings, folks. One storm can wipe that out. Don't take comfort in your good health. One cancer cell can end that. Don't take comfort in having a multitude of family and friends. Those things can all be taken away. Don't be comforted by your wealth. It can be gone in a moment. Pray that God would keep you away from that pride and keep you totally in Him and dependent on Him. Rudy Tobler and I were eating lunch this last week, and we were talking about when things are easy, when the money's there, when the account is well, when the family's all getting along with one another, the job is secure, when things are easy, we're not really desperate for God, are we? We don't tend to be super desperate for God and His strength and His presence not really on our knees very much. But when the storm comes, we tend to come to the end of ourselves. You may be facing a storm today. In fact, I know that there's got to be a handful of you in this even small Saturday crowd that are facing hardship, family, health, whatever. And people ask this question all the time. Why would God allow this? Why would God let this happen to me? Now, I don't know all the reasons, and I don't know God's sovereignty and the plan for your life, but I can say one thing confidently. One, one reason I know He's letting this go, you go through this is because He wants to pull you to Himself. He is driving you to the end of yourself so that you would rely on Him. And if you think you're close enough to God already, you've, you've missed the point. God wants you to the point of total selflessness. Get in the Word. Trust in the sanctifying work of God. He wants your heart not your comfort. And this is the story of what we see of the disciples. Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was all part of a plan. I'm sure Jesus understood even before sending them away as part of the purpose of him separating from them and so that they would get to the point of, of great distress, great hardship, and then turn to him. And this brings us to number two. Jesus reveals himself when we are most desperate. Jesus reveals himself when we're most desperate. It says there in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, there were separated watches, and you can think of this almost like military. They would go through watches, and if you were on any kind of boat or ship in that day, they would have arranged watches, and people would have to be up all night. And The fourth watch would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So the darkest hours right up to dawn. Now, it shouldn't have taken them this long from the evening after the feeding of the 5,000 to get across the lake. It is indeed a lake, though it's a big lake. If you went there, it, does, uh, it, it is big. It's a huge lake, but it is a lake. You can see the other side when it's a clear day. It shouldn't take them hours and hours and hours, and here they are. They've been rowing and trying to sail all night long. 
And it says, Matthew says, they're, they're far from the shore. They're way away. They're right in the middle of the lake, and they've, they've not even made it, probably not even halfway yet. And Jesus had commanded to do this, them to do this many hours before, so they're struggling. They're trying to do what he said. Verse 26, the disciples are out there struggling. They're frightened. They see him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, it's a ghost. Phantasm is really the word. They didn't know what to believe what this was. They didn't know what this was. I I would imagine a lot of us would have said the same thing. If you didn't have in your brain the idea of Jesus walking on water, if that wasn't in your brain, it's in most of our brains. If you didn't have that in your brain, if that was just completely gone, even knowing of all of Jesus' miracles, you wouldn't have put that in a list of miracles. And here is this being walking. And I would imagine, you know, these huge waves all around, but right around him there were no waves, and he was walking on a tranquil piece of water toward them. Jesus sees them crying out in fear. He comes down, appears to them. Again, must have been some sort of miraculous movement down the mountain and onto the sea. Obviously, we cannot explain the metaphysics of this. This is clearly a miracle of monumental proportion. He comes down. He's walking to them. We saw this in our study of of Mark. He sort of pretends or makes as though he's going to pass by. And this is in order to elicit their crying out, right? He, He wants them. They couldn't do anything to save themselves but he wants them to recognize that and vocalize that and cry out. So Jesus makes as though he's going to pass by them. Matthew doesn't tell us that, that, but Mark does. But his plan all along was to deliver them. These guys were fishermen. These guys knew how to sail. They've been on that lake a million times. They knew where all the reefs and the sandbars and things were that they could tie. They, they knew how to sail, and yet they come to the end, of the end of themselves. They're most desperate. And that's when Christ comes to them. Now look at what Jesus says in response. Take art. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, I want to show you something pretty amazing. In the original language, that phrase, it is I, that, that would be a good translation of what is in the original there. I looked at a number of different Bible translations to see how they translated that phrase from the Greek into the English, and many of them do translate it, it is I. Do not be afraid, take heart, it is I. But you know what the original says? Let me give you the Greek words, you don't have to remember this, ego, me, and those words are also translated, I am. You know what that means? I am. I am is the phrase that God in the Old Testament identified himself as. I am. That's where ultimately the word, the name of God, Yahweh, comes from. I am that I am. I am. He's the eternally self-existent God. I am. Moses, remember, he, he fled in terror. He had murdered somebody. He got into big trouble. He fled in terror away from the Egyptians. He ran out into the wilderness. This is in Exodus. And he ran out into the wilderness, and he comes upon some amazing supernatural sight. 
He's at the end of himself. He's desperate. He's at the end of his rope, and he comes upon this, this amazing, miraculous sight of a, of a giant bush on fire, but not being consumed by the fire. He has a revelation of God, a burning bush. And that bush speaks to him, and that bush identifies itself as what? I am. We see this throughout the, the Bible. Again, that, that name for God, Yahweh, eventually comes from this, this idea, I am, this self-existent, eternally sufficient being that is overall the great I am. That is established all throughout the Old Testament. And every time you hear the word, every time a Hebrew would hear the word Yahweh, they would hear that idea of I am. And Jesus has this great revelation of these men up out on the sea. There they are in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the, that great lake, and they're terrified. Here comes the waves, and the, this ghost shows up, and he says to them, Take heart, I am. Isn't that great? By the way, in several books in the Old Testament and Psalms and Habakkuk and Isaiah, several times in the book of Job, God is depicted as walking upon the water. And here he is again, showing up. Do not fear. Take heart. I am. Do we need this? Of course we do. We need the great I am. We need Jesus it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a long journey throughout the middle of a great sea that's in great turmoil in the middle of the night and you're about to throw in the towel or if things are well for you. We should all be desperate for God. We all should all be desperate to, to know God, to hear from God. And, and how do we hear from God? How do we see God? Well, Jesus said right there in the, that great prayer that he prayed Back in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The revelation of God has been given to us in the word of God. That's how we see God. That's how we know. That's how we hear him speaking. And I know that a lot of Christians talk about hearing God and, and getting visions and having dreams and whatever. And, and sometimes I'm a little intimidated around folks like that because I don't, I don't have that great of an imagination. But we do have the word of God. And the word of God, it says in, in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, that the Word of God, 16 and 17, the Word of God is all we need to equip us for every good task. So whether or not you're hearing dreams or hearing voices or seeing visions or whatever is beside the point. What we need is the Word of God. God's revelation is right in front of us. Perhaps the greatest storm in uh, the life of my wife, Becky, was uh, early in our marriage. It had been several years of infertility. We couldn't have babies. I know you find that hard to believe, but it was hard for us to, to have children early on. And she finally got pregnant with our first child, and it wasn't very long before she lost the baby, miscarried the first baby. As a husband, I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to say something and fix the situation that would cause her to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay now, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. As a husband, I wanted to be sort of the knight in shining armor and fix the problem. But I began to realize in her darkest hour, God was doing a work on her heart. When she was most desperate, Jesus was drawing near to her. Jesus was to be the knight in shining armor, not me. 
Jesus was calling her to himself, causing her to rely on the revelation of God, his word. And, and I never saw her ever in our marriage get so obsessed with reading the word of God and studying the word of God than in that time of, of great desperation. And it was through that desperate situation and Becky's dependence on God and study of the Word of God that it wasn't very long from that time that she began to learn of her need of salvation. And over time, she finally saw the great I Am and saw Jesus Christ. She had faith, she repented, and believed. And let me tell you something. What's interesting is, at least twice in my time here, my 10 years here, at least twice, this same exact story has repeated itself in our congregation. A young lady can't get pregnant, years of infertility, followed by pregnancy, all the joy, and then crushing blow of miscarriage. And then the young lady begins to study and to read and to pray and be so desperate for God and finally realizes they're not even a believer. We've had two ladies, at least two ladies in our church in 10 years be saved in the exact same circumstances at the, at the bottom of themselves in the greatest desperation and in the greatest storm of life as they bury themselves in Jesus Christ and knowing His Word in the revelation of God. They discover that they need to repent, have faith in Christ, believe and surrender their lives to Him. Well, this brings me to my final point. Number three, revelation, faith, and repentance redefine life. These things become, this is really, those words sort of summarize is what we get from this idea of worship. Revelation, that's the Word of God, the truth of God, Jesus revealing Himself to His people. Faith, believing in Him, repentance, turning away from sin. These actions become definitive of life. It's what I said at the very beginning. This is, this is definitive for every Christian. It's not that we did it once and now we're done doing those things. We, we did it as the beginning of a lifestyle of Revelation, faith, repentance. Revelation, faith, repentance. We do it every day. Open our Bibles. Revelation, faith, repentance. Well, we see this in two ways. One is with Peter. As we often see it, Peter is sort of the representative. We see it in Peter, and then we see it express itself in the lives of all the disciples. So, verse 28, Peter says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come, but... Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, Peter, as I said a second ago, Peter, if you haven't figured out, he, he's sort of the guy among the disciples who sort of says and does what everybody is thinking. Right? Peter's sort of a representative of the disciples. He ends up becoming the leader of all the disciples. The storm is raging. He clearly believes at this point that it is indeed Jesus. Jesus says, it is I or I am. He, he understands this is Jesus. And so he asks that if he's truly Christ, that he would command him to come out. And I, I think this is a pretty bold and courageous thing to say. You know, it's interesting that Peter didn't say, now, Jesus, do what you did last time and calm the storm. Prove it. So I don't think Peter is trying to say to Jesus, prove to me. When it says, if you are, if it is you... Uh, that word if in the Greek can also be since. So I think Peter's saying more like this. Jesus, since you are you, since you are Jesus, make a command of me that is amazing and shocking. Command me to come to you. You're my Lord. 
I don't think Jesus is trying to put Jesus to the test as much as he's trying to come under submission of Jesus and do what Jesus wants and be like Jesus out there in the water. And so he asked Jesus to give him a command, a command that Peter knew he could, he could not endure on his own, but only Jesus, with his help, would he be able to fulfill. And Jesus does give him the command, and lo and behold, Peter also walks on water. Well, what happens? What happens to Peter? Well, it's the same thing that happens to all of us. He does. There's faith. There's revelation. There's repentance. He's got his eyes on Christ, but then he begins to look at his circumstances, and he begins to look at the hardship around him, and he begins to look at a storm. He begins to sink. He cries out. Jesus saves him and reminds him of his life that it ought to be revolving around faith and following Christ. So he teaches this little lesson, Peter You lost faith. I gave you this revelation. You took your eyes off the revelation. You stopped having faith. You stopped turning away from your old way of life. By looking at all your circumstances, you started to rely on yourself again. And Jesus teaches Peter a little lesson. And I believe Peter and the rest of the disciples learned this lesson. And I think we know they learned that lesson because look what it says in verse 32. And this is sort of the second part that shows us what happens here in terms of Worship or revelation, faith, and repentance. Verse 32, it says, When they got in the boat, the, the uh, 31 said, the, They got in the boat, the, the wind ceased, everything went away, everything got calm. Verse 32, it ceased. Verse 33, And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, I want to show you this. I told you at the beginning I was going to show you the maturity, how the disciples had taken a baby step. They'd matured a little bit in this time. So keep your finger here and flip back to chapter 8 where we see the other calming of the storm, the other great storm of the people in the water, the disciples out on the boat. Again, this time Jesus is already with them. Verse 25 of Matthew 8 They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Pastor Jim always calls the disciples the O you of little faith club. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Back in 14, verse 32, they worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You see the difference? The first time they're in this distress, they cry out to him and they say, Who is this? Now, in verse 33, they worship him and they know exactly who he is. You're the Son of God. You see the growth? They worshiped him. All of this, all of the healings, all of the, the sending out, all the work that they had done, and this great trial, this great distress, this great storm was to bring them to a point where they would understand finally who Jesus really is. And the revelation was not just him showing up on the water, the revelation happened in their minds and in their hearts. This is Jesus. This is God. 
And they do what you do when God is there. They worshiped him. This follows the pattern of revelation, the the truth of Christ. You see Christ not just in your intellect or your emotions. You see him in your heart. You know who he is. And what do you do? You respond to that revelation by believing in him, by having faith, by repenting and turning away from your old way of life. By believing, it's clearly these men believe that Jesus is God. When it says Son of God, and we know that in that day they believed that Son of God was the same thing as calling Him God, as calling Him divine. The one reason we know that is because the Pharisees, one of the reasons they give for killing Jesus, one of the reasons they give is because they said they, He calls Himself the Son of God, making Himself to be God. In that day and age, a son had all the rights and the power and the authority as the Father. And so Jesus calling Himself the Son of God, them them calling him the Son of God is the same thing as them saying he is indeed God. And we don't know how exactly in particular fashion how the Trinity works, the, the triune God works, but clearly they believe in the Trinity here. They believe that Jesus, though a different person from God, though the second person of the Trinity, he is nevertheless God. And they worship him. In the Old Testament, it is God alone who is to be worshiped. No other gods before me, God had told them in the very beginning. You don't worship anybody. You only worship God. And here they are, understanding, maybe in their hearts for the first time, understanding that Jesus is indeed divine. And they worship Him. Now, we see this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a few. But in Matthew chapter 2, we see the wise men worshiping Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, there's a leper whom He heals who worships Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, we'll see this pretty soon, a Canaanite woman worships Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, the demoniac, the man who's, who's healed of his demon possession, he worships Christ. In John chapter 9, a blind man worships Christ. In John chapter 12, a bunch of Gentiles who have been saved worship Christ. You know, if Jesus was not God and he was just a good man, like a lot of people say he was, he would not accept worship. What would he say? Oh, I'm not God. You need to worship. If he was a really a good man, he would say, well, don't worship me. I'm not God. Worship God. But throughout the New Testament, all these different times that people worship Christ, he receives their worship, he accepts their worship. This, this forces you to say Jesus is either a liar, a crazy man, a lunatic, or he really is Lord. And every human being has to come to that point. As this revelation comes to us, as the truth comes to us and dawns on our heart, we have to make a decision. Is Jesus really what he says he is? Or is he some sort of shyster? Or is he a crazy man? There's no option there for a good man because a good man would never receive worship. He receives worship because he is indeed God. He never stops them. He knows he is worthy of worship. Well... What a wonderful lesson. I was at lunch this week with another gentleman, uh, just a great time getting to know him, new, new guy in our church, and we were talking about this fact again, that God uses hardship to wake us up. And God had used hardship in his own life and my life to, to wake us up to the truth of God. God uses very difficult, oftentimes deadly circumstances to make us finally desperate enough to see and believe That's revelation. That's 
calling us to respond in faith and repentance, worship. Scary side of this is asking the question, what will God have to do to get my attention, to bring me to the end of myself, to finally worship Him? What's even more scary is the thought perhaps He's he's already done that, and you continue to turn away from Him. No, we want to respond to hardship in the same way that these disciples did by growing in our understanding and love and worship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask Him to make us soft to Him, listening to His calling and responding in faith and repentance the rest of our lives. Father, we thank You for today. We pray that we would indeed respond to You in faith and repentance. Help us love You in this way. Lord, You have given us hardship, oftentimes not out of meanness or an anger towards us, but out of a great mercy so that we would come to the end of ourselves and finally repent and trust in Jesus. Help us do this, O Lord. Lord, again, this is something that any lost person needs to do, but it's true for every person who's saved, who's born again. We need to do this all the time. This is a way of life, this maturity, this growth, this onward progress. So help us do this, Lord. We need your strength. We need you to do this in our hearts. So we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.